Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. My name is Katrina Stanson. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm Stephen Zuber. And Inyash wanted to introduce our guest and topic for the day. Today we are here with Steve Parker, also known as Young Idealist on Twitter. And he is here to t- speak with us about... Um... Street epistemology. Thank you. I was about to say street evangelism, and I was like, no, that's not right. No, no, no. <laughs> kind of the opposite. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't think any of us are super familiar with street epistemology, so Steve has kindly volunteered to bring us up to speed. Yeah, actually, the first I'd heard of it was when Steve contacted me on Twitter and said, hey, have you heard of this thing before? And I said, no, I haven't, but let me look into it, and it seemed very interesting. I said, hey, Steve, you want to talk about this and fill us in? And Steve, I believe, said yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, he's here, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) So, in fact, um, street epistemology is something that I've been plotting to try to connect with um, the rationalist movement for a while now, Um, mainly because it was born of a a a want to profess and preach rationalization, uh, not rationality, um, to the masses. Now, in some little way. Were you a rationalist first or a street epistemologist first? Definitely rationalist, a fan of uh, Eliezer's, as well as uh, a fan of um, Harry Potter and the methods of rationality. Mm, How did you get into this? Before SE was even... How did you get into this, Jam? Street epistemology? Yeah. Well, uh, rationality. Or both. (laughs) I'm always curious to hear people's rationality origin story. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Um, I started out learning about um, Harry Potter and the methods um, by a, a friend. He he told me that it was a story that, and he just reads a lot of fan fiction online, just randomly, um, or, or also like uh, independent works of sorts. And so, if there's anything in the sort of nerd grapevine that he happens to find and it's interesting, he tells me about it. And um, so, yeah, me. Uh, my him and my other best friend have been um, fans of H.P. Moore for uh, a, f- a few years now, and I definitely got into it post the making of the podcast. So I think you guys were about uh, two thirds of the way through when I started um, listening, and then I ended up catching up to the end of the podcast, and <clears throat> I just had to read the rest of it online because I wasn't <laughs> willing to to leave on the cliffhanger that I was stuck at. Right. I, I wouldn't have been either. And it opened me up to learning more and more about um, Eliezer and the and um, the less wrong community. And so I just started investigating on my own and started to realize, like, this is what I've actually been feeling and believing and wanting to um, represent my foundation, like, for the longest time. Like, it, it's always hard to say what sets you apart from most people as, as in terms of your ideals or what you want to use to define yourself. And I think rationality is just a, a great concept in that sense. Like it, it is, it's a huge legacy of the entire human race to be able to think rationally and come up with the awesome things that we come up with from um, our cultures to our technology. Um, and that all required rational thought on some level, at some base level. And so I, I just, I loved learning more and more of how to just dig into that and and be more of a rationalist myself. 
That's fantastic. I think that's the the motivation behind most of us being here, and uh, certainly mine as well. And I, I was introduced to the the proper rationality through HPMOR as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of what you're saying. I think was a lot of the 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 chorus and the choir that we all like and and can rally behind. So I think that's why a lot of us are here as well. Did some yeah. sort of recruiter show up on Less <laughs> Wrong and uh, try to get you involved in street epistemology? How did that happen? Actually, um, I connected with a good friend of mine. Um, I can say his name because he's he's a, a musician trying to get his name out there. Um, Buck Bowen. Um, he and I connected through a local um, atheist meetup group that he actually was running at the time. And I learned about his music and learned about, uh, we, we got along and, and traded um, some feedback on, on what the atheist movement for us really meant and what it should look like. And then he happened to, uh, somewhere along the way, get connected with Peter Boghossian before his book even came out. Um, the Peter Boghossian's book being a manual for creating atheists. Um, and that's where street epistemology was first described and defined and um, inspired to the masses to, to give this sort of idea a shot that, um, like, in, in the simplest sense, street epistemology is being able to have civil conversations with just anyone about what they believe and why. And it's a sort of methodology on how you can do that and keep it from... Uh, turning into something where two people who fundamentally disagree want to tear each other's throats out at the end of it. <laughs> okay, so um, when I first heard the word street epistemology, it brought to mind things like street evangelism, street preachers. So is it is it ever a situation where you're literally out on the street kind of talking to passerbys? passers-by? Effect effectively, it has been. Um, the initial premise wasn't suggesting that you necessarily go up and try to like hold a sign and uh, you know try to ask everybody who who passes by what they believe and why. It's more of a methodology for how you can start to engage with anyone who you happen to be talking to and the subject of beliefs comes up. Um, but uh, there are a few people who have turned it into its own little form of evangelism, and what it's really evangelizing is just that people should be more aware of exactly how they themselves can define their own beliefs and exactly what it is that motivates them or inspires them to hold those beliefs in the first place. And it, it, yeah, it really doesn't have to go much further than that in order to help people think about things that they've never, they never otherwise would have thought. Does it always go into the atheism territory? Is Not always. always. religious beliefs? Nope. It can be applied to religion, politics, um, conspiracy theories, really just anything that you fundamentally disagree with someone on. I, when I was looking to street epistemology, the thing that really caught my eye and you know made me want to decide to have you on was it seemed that the fundamental question of street epistemology, when I was reading it, is the same as the fundamental question of rationality. There was a lot of focus on saying, you know, ask people what they believe and why they believe it. Exactly. And one of Peter Boghossian's um, main points that he emphasizes in, um, in a manual for creating atheists is that 
we need to be of the mindset that if we are wrong and some new information or some new argument we've never heard of before can prove to us or show us that we are wrong, we need to be of a mindset that is open and willing to accept that and learn from that and actually accept the new argument as our own. Agreed. Which is exactly something I first came across in um, the rationalist movement from, from Eliezer. And the, the focus on street epistemology, the other thing that really caught my eye was that we've, we've talked before, I think, with, uh, when we were interviewing from Skeptoid. Brian Dunning. Brian Dunning, yes, that, uh, there seems, there's often a, a idea that atheism has a bit of a dick problem in that, uh, there, people are often called dicks for the way they, uh, confront people. And street epistemology seemed to be very much, uh, a reaction to that. The, a, be how to be nice to people and get them on your side. Is that correct? Is, is that a focus you've you've noticed? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, in in a street epistemology conversation, you would not you would actually emphasize learning about the other person and letting them have their own little soapbox to speak from, and you utilize um, Socratic method to get them to parse out and open up. To further questions that they might not have otherwise considered for themselves. Um, and you, you need to avoid even bringing in your counter-arguments or your counter-evidence to the table. Um, it, instead, you, you would want something like, um, so, you know, what I've heard from, like, say, if the, the issue is, or the, the topic is someone believes in Jesus Christ as Son of God, what whatnot, um, and it, you ask them their reason, and their reason happens to be, say, um, because I have faith. Well, the, uh, the, the, the street, street epistemology response would be, that's interesting. So I've spoken to Muslims who have, have said that they um, believe it, that Muhammad is a prophet from God um, because they have faith. Um, and a lot of what I'm hearing from the Muslim and from the Christian, from a Christian like yourself is that faith is the reason why they believe. Is that the same thing? Like is, is faith of what they mean, the same thing as what you mean? And is, is that enough to justify why they believe in their religion as opposed to yours? So it's kind of like that. You just have, have you done you find a nice course? way to, Oh yeah. And what, what reaction yeah. do you get when you ask that sort of a thing? Well, first to, to, to point out what I feel like when I'm doing street epistemology is I feel like on some level I'm patronizing the other person because to me, my questions seem like they're obvious. But what I get is this surprising reaction from, from most, um, that I, that I use street epistemology with that they seem to appreciate that you're interested. And that they have a chance to talk about, like, or to even think more deeply about the things that they they really didn't think of before. Who are it, the it's people? A, it's a very sheer difference. What's that? Who are the people that you're speaking with? How does this um, how does this play out in your life? Well, some of us have gathered on the website blab.io, and 
on Blab, you can have these random discussions with just about anybody who's interested. Um, it's a video chat uh, for four people, and then everybody else gets to be on the side chat. And um, some of us have used Blab to practice our street epistemology. Um, there's also, um, in my personal life, I've, um, I've practiced epistemology on my family, um, with my girlfriend, uh, with my mother, and um, these are family members and people close to me who, um, <laughs> who, who believe in things like Christianity that I, I don't believe in myself. And the result just tends to be that they, they feel a little closer after the fact. They, it feels like we actually work something out and understand more about each other by the end of it. I feel like I went through a similar uh, period of my life right around um, high school, maybe earlier, is when I sort of lost my religion and was talking with people about it. And, you know, that's when you get into all the, the exciting circle jerk of reading atheist books and all the fun, <laughs> all the fun arguments with, with religious people. And I had fun, you know, just tearing down my, my parents' arguments and stuff and uh, being a dick. And then that sort of wore off. And uh, I've, like you said, or like you've experienced, I, I found that conversations after my goal was to be more amicable was uh, much more rewarding for, I think, mm -hmm. both parties involved. Uh, yeah, there's there's never really a good time to be an asshole. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I take that back. It's not hard to generate examples. But when you're trying to change someone's mind, probably not, right? Right. So right. that reminds me, did, did you ever see um, Phil Plate gave a talk a few years ago, uh, which I'm sure is widely circulated on YouTube, called uh, Don't Be a Dick? I think it fits pretty well I don't with know what you're describing. Yeah, I don't know if I saw his before, but I've definitely heard a few talks about how to not be a dick. Oh, yeah, good deal. Yeah, I think his was kind of just not even necessarily how, it was just don't be. And it, like, it was sort of with the assumption that everyone knew what being a dick was. It was a very short talk. <laughs> it was literally just those words. <laughs> no, it's, Point it's, done. It, it, can be, it can be so hard when you first deconvert, though, because, or I anyway, I still had all this pent-up passion and... I mean, it's also sort of this anger at my entire life having been a lie, you know? And everything that I thought was true turns out to be complete crap. And you just want to go to other people and you're like, look at this! Can you not see it? Soylent Green is made of people, you know? So Santa Claus it's the same real. kind of thing. Yeah, I guess. Exactly. Do kids go through the same thing with Santa Claus? Um, I got in trouble for telling my friends that Santa Claus wasn't real. Do you remember how you felt when you found that out? Uh, I was I was uh, pretty proud of myself for figuring it out, and then <laughs> I didn't hold it against my parents, but I didn't want anybody else to live in the shadows yeah. <laughs> of, of such a lie, so I, of course I went and told my friends, and I got slammed. People did not want to hear that there was no Santa. I, you you it, didn't experience something similar? And then you can piss off your friend's parents even more by saying, you know all the stuff I just said about Santa? Yeah, Jesus now. <laughs> no, I mean, I had that experience about Jesus. I never did about Santa Claus because, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Right right from the start, they're like, yeah, Santa Claus made up pagan thing. Don't don't believe him because that's Satan trying to get into your head. Mm. Yeah. I was actually on the other side of it, arguing to defend Santa Claus and, and, and wanting a debate at that age. Nice. Until my mom finally admitted to me that um, Santa Claus wasn't real. Your mom was like, then, you're, you're too good at this. All the other kids are starting to believe again. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think they wanted anything to do with me because I was so argumentative. <laughs> <laughs>
Are, um, I'm trying to think of just other things that, that the street epistemology uh, mindset brings to mind. And uh, Dan Dennett is famous for putting or talking quite a bit about, um, let's see, there, it's called Rappaport's Rules, named after the game theorist Anatole Rappaport. Um, it's really short. There's there's four principal things. And one, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I thought of putting it that way. Hmm. Um, two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they're not matters of general or widespread agreement. Three, you should mention anything you've learned from your target. Four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. And I think one is where most people get tripped up. They're in a good order here. Uh, for the most part, especially in an argument, you're not really interested. Well, we are. <laughs> Many people aren't interested in fully understanding where their opponent is coming from. Um, now, granted, if you're having a conversation with, you know, an evangelist uh, Christian or something, it's going to be this. You basically know exactly where they're coming from already. But uh, if it's just somebody talking about, well, that's it not... really depends on the Christian. Yeah, There's so it... many different flavors. <laughs> but but it's not like I'm going to come across this one church that is going to suddenly convince me that God's real. Like I think their their core premises are about the same. Um, I don't know about I... that, Stephen. I think that a lot of churches have different approaches to what God is and how metaphorical it is. True, true. And I I do want to point out some things that I have learned from doing street epistemology is um, there is a space for me to actually respect somebody who I otherwise did not have any respect for, like. I, I know that I used to be a Christian, and I was fairly strong in that belief once upon a time. But then when I engage Christians now and I try to have that conversation, I've got a long history as well of just feeling like, my God, you just must be too stupid to understand the thing that I'm trying to tell you or trying to talk to you about. But with street epistemology, there's this one example of an individual I met on Blab, and I think I, I have to forthright say that I think she is uh, she has a low IQ score and she says things which contribute to many ills of society that I really dislike but when I got to hear her express how confident she really felt how well, why she what she believed exactly and why she believed it and was willing in the comfort of that space having this street epistemology talk to actually, challenge her own thinking and go through these exercises with us, I I have nothing but utter respect for this individual. Like, even though I don't think she's smart, even though she, I think she does these things which I find are still bad, she has earned my respect through street epistemology. I think, I think there's a level of respect that has to be granted to anyone who's willing to engage in dialogue, right? It's not like mm -hmm. a person who will shout over you and call you an idiot or a heathen or a what do you call them, a blasphemer or a hedonist or whatever who's going to hell or something. It's the people who get irate, who lose their, their cool, that it's hard to really respect after a dialogue, right? I Correct. think, yeah, Steve, I think it's great that you're opening yourself up to really learning things about why people think the things they do and why people believe the things they do. And I imagine that people come up with excellent points sometimes and that you do mm -hmm. um, interact with intelligent people who disagree with you, right? I'm Correct. Sorry, that was, in that fact, was a huge prompt there. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I, keep, I always keep it in mind um, something aside from street epistemology and um, the rationalist movement. I, I think of when somebody makes a good point, I try to keep in mind um, positive reinforcement. 
like ultimately I want to help train them to be more rational people. So if they make a rational point, I need to give them a part of what they're really hoping for, which is credit. You know, just say, you know what, that's a really great point. That is a really, really good point. I want you to know that's a good point. Because this, this, and this, you know, you have to show them that you respect them, especially when they are making a sound argument. So a question that we've asked ourselves several times on this uh, podcast, what what is the benefit of doing this? I would say the big picture benefit that um, everyone should have in mind if they decide to engage in street epistemology is that right now we have a sort of world culture that does not appreciate having difficult conversations. A lot of people avoid these conversations because they're uncomfortable. And that becomes more and more of a problem because we isolate and we still end up going to war over things that we disagree on. Um, yet we don't have enough of this civil engagement where we can actually say, okay, wait, let me understand exactly what you think and why you think it. And then we can move on from there. It, we don't have these conversations most of the time because people end up so locked in their camps, unwilling to just have the conversation. No, even accept that you're going to disagree, but at least know what it is you're actually disagreeing about and why you disagree about it. I think that's that's key. And it, if you can get to the point where you can re, where you can at least restate what your what your interlocutor is is saying that they believe, that you've you've already come way further than most people when having an argument, right? Absolutely. You, you know, even if you can't do it so well that they, you know, you're following the first rule of rapport, but at the very least, being able to say, oh, okay, so you believe this. Am I right? Not uh, where you come to somebody and be like, oh, you're a Christian, you believe this, this, and this. Or, oh, you're a... I, I, I hate to keep picking on religion because I feel like it's, it's, it's an easy target. But, uh, you know, oh, you're a, a... You know, from the other side, you know, oh, you're a skeptic. Oh, so you're just one of those, you know, debunking uh, no-fun dicks, right? <laughs> so, um, Great. If, if you can meet in a place where you at least understand what the other person is trying to get at. I feel like that's really important. Yeah. How How is uh, street epistemology different than skepticism? I'm sort of seeing a lot of overlay, and I think you already kind of covered that in, in the same way that rationality overlays the skepticism. I would say street epistemology is a tool. It's a, more fundamentally a tool which can be used for expressing or teaching people about skepticism in a Socratic sort of way as well as rationality, but I also want to emphasize that as a tool, anyone who in their own mind finds their belief to be rational should find street epistemology, street epistemology to be a great tool for helping to change minds with a rational premise. So you have to be willing to use Socratic method in this sort of way to convince people to question what they believe. And at the end of the day, I think if we are being, if we're talking about people who value rationality in their beliefs, I think we can come across a good number of people besides atheists who would find street epistemology to be useful. Because, mm -hmm. you know, epistemology is about understanding how we know the things that we know. And so, at the very least, if someone feels like their belief is valid, then they should feel no they should feel no discomfort in 
learning about other people's beliefs and why they believe them and asking the sort of questions that would be the kind of questions that would convince them if there was a better answer for them. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, pick a topic, right? I mean, anti-vaccination, global warming. Uh, there's there's people on both sides that are very uh, strongly opinionated, and there are people on both sides that are... Or there are people on both of those issues that are wrong. But being able to talk coolly about whatever your disagreement is... I, again, I think I just think that's, that's hugely key. But I, as far as the difference between, like I said, I guess run-of-the-mill skepticism and pseudepistemology, if I'm hearing you right, I guess you can be a pseudepi- you can be a skeptic by yourself in your basement, but you can't be a street epistemologist by yourself in your basement. You've got to be out there talking to people. Right. Unless you're on a, a you know, video chat or something. Mm-hmm. Out there That's in inmate really space or cyberspace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, can you absolutely... pick a topic? Is there is there something you can like epistemologize one of us about that we disagree with you on? I bet. Okay. Um well I I think if if I really value my skill set in street epistemology, I might be able to even street epistemologize uh, any of you on something that you believe, which I actually agree with. I think so I that would have be something that we disagree with. Okay. Okay, what's that? I, I recently spoke to somebody who was talking about why she was uncomfortable to discuss a belief that she has. And um, it seemed to be a, a reasonable explanation, and I, and I was totally cool with her doing that. She had a, she wanted to keep a belief and she was afraid that by looking into it further, she would potentially change her mind or it was likely that she would change her mind. Mm-hmm. And she didn't want to, um, to go through that process and potentially alienate her friends who, who held that belief. And it was more important for her to get along with her friends than it was for her to change her belief okay. or to, to look into it further. So the position is... Well, you're talking about how um, people should be comfortable discussing... Oh, sure. Right? Yeah, but some people aren't even ready to take step one, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're not ready to look into the... to flinch into the, the darkness, or, or look <laughs> as, as the, as the right. lingo goes, but, or if you're not ready to, to even question your belief, then you're probably not ready to talk to anybody. My position is it's okay. To, to not talk about things? It's okay to not question your beliefs if that <laughs> if if that's what you really don't if you don't want to. All right, see, you okay. All right, so um, trouble with that is that I actually would agree with you, and oh. <laughs> so would Peter Bogosian. Um, I can challenge that. The, th- the oh. thing about that conversation, if I were to have that conversation with uh, this individual using street epistemology. I, I want to establish some of the basics with the individual. Like, if you were wrong, would you want to know that you're wrong? If your belief is incorrect, and I'm not saying that it is, would that be something you would want to know? That That's oftentimes a good way to lead the conversation, just to, just to check that sort of thing and make sure you're not stepping on any toes of somebody who might be better off keeping their belief. Um, and so with a response like that, saying, I don't want to lose my friends, um, I might ask um, if you possibly had other friends that you know you wouldn't lose and felt that expanded support system, would that be something you'd be interested in? Like, Do you feel like maybe you might want to have more friends so that your, <laughs> your, your group that you can talk to about your thoughts um, 
um, doesn't always feel like it would go away just because they dis- they disagree with you. Hey, you, your friends aren't diversified enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, can I jump in here? Yeah, go ahead. I, go I think ahead. it would depend on specifically what it is that she believes. You know, if it was something yes. harmless, like, I mean, it's, it's all, thinking of a harmless belief is actually kind of hard, and that's sort of what I'm considering. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. I mean, so that, that one's pretty nonchalant, but it, it's, I feel like it's on, so she believes in Santa Claus at, like, 30. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, that, I don't know, I guess... You would ask her how she thinks. I, I, so I mean, that one seems too out there. But I guess I'm trying to think of. I, I'm going to the like the examples that I generated earlier. You know, like if it's global warming or anti-vaxxing mm-hmm. or something. In her case, it's a, a gender politics type question. Oh, okay. Right. So. Oh yeah. Then if it's just a politics question and it's just about like, do I want to start expressing a different belief and have all my friends hate me? And when it's when it's such a a non-issue and she would rather have a belief that allows her to be very supportive of her friends. Gotcha. With. But right. she's afraid that if she looks into it further, she might develop, she might have some conversations and further develop beliefs that would cause her to alienate her friends. Then that doesn't like a harder question. Just yeah, like if it's it, a hard question because well, yeah. it's a it's a politics and policy question. It's not like a fact question. So like if she was wrong right. on a fact question, you know about say the origin of of autism and its connection to vaccines or something super easy like that, then I would be comfortable challenging her and saying, look. It's not okay for you to have this wrong belief, even if it's going to alienate, alienate your friends. Your belief isn't private. If you're ever planning on having kids, or if you're talking to people See, about I would, vaccinating their kids, I would first ask if they ever plan on having kids, because if they don't, I'd be like, whatever, believe whatever you want. <laughs> Nieces and nephews. I mean, you know, uh, friends who who might procreate, and then you know, she'd be talking to the friends, trying to talk them out of vaccinating, maybe they're less informed. Uh, I mean, so like, it's it's hard. There was a great essay um, by William something Clifford called "The Ethics of Belief." And uh, he lays out this analogy, or it's a, it's a parable, I guess, where this boat captain, you know, ports and he's getting ready to, to make a shipment for another, uh, or load the, load the boat for another shipment. And he's thinking, man, I'm wondering if the boat is actually seaworthy. You know, it's been kind of rickety lately. And then he's like, no, you know what? I'm not going to look into it. I don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with it if it is a problem. So never mind. Boat goes out, sinks. So the, Everyone's intuition, which I think is correct, is that it's all his fault. The thought, occurred, <laughs> the thought occurred to him to look into it, and he suppressed the belief because he didn't want to go through the effort of what it would mean to admit that he might be wrong. That is, in the belief that his right. ship was seaworthy. But if you hit someone with that story on the street, they're going to be like, you're, you're, you're comparing me to a murderous boat captain. Well, I'm, I'm not talking <laughs> to you anymore. Clifford, Clifford then flips it and ends the story saying the boat went fine, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Is the ship captain any less culpable? No, because he had no idea whether the boat was seaworthy. Right. He just, he wanted to believe it was, so he didn't look into it. So the fact that things worked okay, and yes, I would, I would equate an anti-vaxxer to, to the boat captain, saying, look, you're afraid to look into this because your belief that, uh, your, what, you know, whatever your belief about the connection of vaccines to autism is important to you for some reason, and that is enough for you to, to go about and evangelize this this bad epistemology. Yeah, but if, uh, if you're if the anti-vaxxer you're talking to isn't just someone you ran across at a bus stop, if it's like a co-worker or a cousin or someone you have to interact with daily, not daily, but frequently, you don't want to just accuse them and then they are they're, they're going to be even less likely to listen to what you have to say after this because they will identify you as the hostile enemy side that must be defended against. Steve, uh, mm-hmm. let's say that I'm against vaccines because I think that they um, they cause autism in children. How would, okay. you, how would you talk to me? 
Okay, let me see if I understand this. Um, you believe that when a doctor gives a child a vaccine, that it always cause it, it always causes harm to the child, or no. has a high potential? And that there's a there's a higher chance of them, a significantly higher chance of them developing autism, which interesting, is, which will make their lives more difficult potentially. Interesting. And would you have a number that you could set to like how? Like what? What you think the probability of that, um, the likelihood of them them being harmed would be? Do you think it's I, like I'm most children? I'm pulling this out of my ears, so this is not fair to anti-vaxxers. <laughs> um, but let's say, uh, yes, I read a study in which um, the normal the normal level of autism is 10 percent, but among kids who have vaccines, it's 15%. And that concerns me because uh, I know that autism can really impact a, a person's life. Oh, okay. Negatively, so, potentially. So you've read an article, and that article said that um, 10 to 15%, you said, of yeah, children but, can be harmed by vaccines? Well, uh, rather that there's a 5%, a significant increase of 5% in oh, kids okay. who have vaccines versus not. And um, since that's a scientific article, I'm very concerned about that. And now okay. I feel like people are trying to cover it up because Big Pharma. Okay, so if there wasn't that particular argument, is the, is the article the main reason why you believe? Like if that article wasn't there, would you still believe that vaccines cause harm to children? Uh, no, I, I don't think I would. Okay, well, and that's that's... Pretty interesting. So, so then, hypothetically, if I had another study that to show you, um, and I don't, I'm not saying that I do, but if I had one um, which suggested the opposite, would that change how strongly you feel about vaccines? Well, Will that I... change your opinion about vaccines at all? Um, I'm aware that there are articles, um, that there are scientific articles that suggest the opposite, but if there's, I don't know which way to go with this, uh, either I think that there's some sort of conspiracy and people are being paid off, or I think that, uh, even, even one article that strongly suggests a connection is enough and and those other ones that and that that's that any let's go with that one <laughs> that any, any risk is too much risk. any risk is too much risk for for chil our children's health let's right so so yeah you're going to have uh, individuals who will say that right and mm -hmm. you'll also have individuals who probably they'll change the subject from being about the article to being about um let's say uh, uh an anecdotal you know, story. This this friend really close to me, I know they had a vaccine, and um, it, you know everything went wrong with their child. Thank you their for helping with. Child has autism. Right? <laughs> I was just going to say, Katrina convinced me that she was uh, ideolo she was passing the ideological Turing test for an anti-vaxxer pretty well up until yes. she started saying. I, I think it was more the first that you'd get in most of the anti-vax crowd, and less of the second. Any risk is too much. Be more like a conspiracy thing, uh -huh. not not like the Bayesian yeah. reasoning of like, well, if, you know, I still have to update a little bit in favor of this one article. Uh -huh. But I liked that. That was fun. No, it's uh, it's the first. It's the anchor bias. 
that we were talking about, in which the first piece of information that I got, I'm adjusting away from it with additional articles, but not enough. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Sorry, Steve, go ahead. And so what I usually find is that when you ask a little more about if the article itself, if you've asked them, like, what's your strongest evidence? And they say it's an article. And then when you ask them, so if the article wasn't there, would it change your mind at all? Then rather than answer that question, they would go, oh, but there was also this story that I heard personally. And there was there's more articles. And here, here's a whole library you can research. Go go fetch. You can go find all that information. Just read the whole library and everything in it. And while you're at it, read the whole Internet and then you'll know. And I, 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 the, the, the technique with street epistemology is to go like, well, okay, I understand. And there are these other things, but can we just stick with what your strongest evidence is or your, your, your personal reason happens to be for why you believe? Cause I'd like to know, like, if you're right, then I want to know. I, I want to know if, if you're right, then I want to also know for the right reasons, um, that you're right, that your, your belief is correct. So if we could go back, you know, is the article really the strongest piece of evidence you have? Because ultimately, if they don't, if, if uh, you know, and sometimes what you can do is, well, what you should often try to do is get sort of a measure. So I could ask, um, on a scale of zero to 100% um, confidence, 100% confidence being you believe vaccines are absolutely um, causing harm to children. And, and that this this claim is true, and zero percent being you absolutely don't believe that vaccines um, cause any harm whatsoever to children. Um, where would you be on your confidence level, right? And most of the time, I'd say ballpark figure maybe about um, fifty-five to sixty percent of the time, you get the response one hundred percent. <laughs> they just are absolutely no budging, and oftentimes they say it without even realizing what that means mm-hmm. um, in a real sense. So then later you can come to um, to to ask them, okay, so if this article wasn't true, or if if I had an article which had similar um, a similar kind of evidence and amount of evidence that was sufficient to argue against. Uh, vaccines causing harm to tr- children. Would that change your your belief in any way? And if they say no, then you have to p- point this out to them that we'll see the, the problem here is, is it, is, is it fair to really say that this is why you believe if when it comes to articles written about uh, studies being done on um, vaccines and the re- vaccines and the relationship to autism, isn't what would actually sway you. What, what would really be the reason why you believe? Like, can, is there something that what's more strongly, uh, like, yeah, it's, if there it's like was a user-friendly version of is that your real objection? Say again. It's like a user-friendly version of is that your true objection? Yeah. Neat. Pretty much. That strikes me as hugely Socratic, kind of just beating them, not beating them down, but that's how Socrates made it look. Uh, wearing them down or maybe getting to the bottom of it just through clarifying yes. questions. Breaking things down. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the more clarification you ask for, the more that you can reveal to them that they're not really coming from where they think they're coming from. I, I think the most important aspect of both the Socratic method and, you know, street epistemology, which it seems to be based on, is 
getting people to stop thinking of arguments as fights where you're on two separate sides and one of you is going to win and start getting people just to think of their own beliefs and try to examine them and not viewing you as the enemy. Right. Exactly. That's something that I heard Steve and Socrates both express was a willingness to like, I really, you know, if you're right, I want to change to believe what you believe, but I'm just not convinced yet. Can you try and convince me? I have a couple of questions. First of all, Anyash, could you explain what is that your true objection is? Oh, it's so basically for people who don't know. It's basically exactly what he said. It's a uh, essay by Eliezer where he he said the the same kind of thing that people often give an objection, and when you refute that or overturn it, they say, "Oh, well, that I have this other objection, and my my original estimate has not changed at all." And his point was, well, then that obviously was not your actual rejection. You were just throwing throwing up, uh, you know, blade of armor, whatever you want to call it, other bulwarks to, to stymie me. Can you please get to what your actual true objection is mm-hmm. so we can make progress? I see. And then my other question is for Steve. Through your practice, have you ever been able to update your own beliefs? Yes. At least I remember the feeling of updating my own beliefs. Um, when was that? Well... The simplest uh, example that comes to mind is um, with my own mother. Like, I believed before that she really didn't give her beliefs any thought whatsoever, and that it was just the title that she put over her head of Christian, and she liked going to church each week. And I don't even know if she's even listening to the sermons, let alone has any thoughts to contribute about them. Um, Because my whole life, whenever we've gone to church... I wanted a conversation afterward about what the sermon was about, and she, whether I was a believer or not, wanted nothing to do with it. (laughs) So we just never engaged or felt like we could be on the same level when it comes to talking about religion. But then in the course of actually talking to her about her beliefs, I learned that she actually gives them a lot more thought than I gave her credit for. And so there, there was... You know, there, there was, I guess, more or less, I, I felt generally, um, more cynical, I would say, about other people and what they're capable of until I was able to engage them with street epistemology. And now, now I actually have the confidence to go into a conversation with, say, um, like, uh, not too long ago, earlier this week, I conversed with a individual who's, um, a, a white supremacist and he's just a young guy who has these beliefs, um, which he, I guess was raised with. I, it's hard to say how he came about them per se, but I was able to comfortably engage him knowing that that would be a very uncomfortable conversation to have and learn more about him as a person, as opposed to how the ignorance of his belief would otherwise define him to me. Have you ever run into someone who was absolutely not interested in having a dialogue, who just wanted to yes. attack yes. and um, make you look bad? Uh, what do you yeah. do in those situations? Typically, I, I yes. troll right back at them in some way or another, but that's just me being my bratty self. Um, in no way is that SE. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes you really, as far as street epistemology is concerned, you have to you have to figure out um, which individuals are worth talking to further. Um, the simplest being, like in, in the case of uh, the, the person who believes that if they change their belief, their life would get worse or that there was a problem with that. Um, really, 
anybody that you come to and ask the question, if you were wrong, would you want to know? If they say no, whatever their explanation, rationality and you trying to argue rationality to them has left the room. You, you now need to have, if anything, um, if anything other than thank you for your time, have a nice day, you want to dig a little more into why they feel that way about this thing. Like, if it was true, it would be such a, a monster to them to find that out. You, you don't really care to tell them that it's not, that it's actually true anymore. You care to find out why is, why is it so scary? Mm-hmm. That's an important, I think, step to take. Like, once they've admitted that they're not, they're not playing the game, right. they're like, all right, cool, then we're not playing that game, but I still want to talk to you. Uh, just to get to the bottom of this, I feel like that's a that's an interesting step, and it makes it easier to, like you described, you know, talking with that white supremacist, and how your mom turned out to be much uh, more thoughtful on the issue of of her religion than than you previously anticipated. It brings home the point that mm, most everybody, and I didn't want to be uncharitable to religious people earlier when I said that I I could probably guess what their arguments were. It was just that I've I've swam in the arguments a lot, and I. I'd be surprised if some some wholly new argument came forth that I had no familiarity with, but the idea that your your opponents, for you know, use of if of that word in this context, aren't like just these soulless monsters. Like you, you talk to this this white supremacist exactly. who most people would just be unwilling to engage with, you know. So like you know, being able to actually sit there and reflect that yes, in a real way, a suicide yes. bomber, a mass shooter, they're people too. Uh, that they're that the reason that they did these things aren't because aren't just because they're monsters. Like no one's no one's just a monster. I mean, most everybody's not just a monster. You know, there are violent psychopaths who just want to be monsters. But them, yeah, and I'd say rule, most right? people can be convinced to be monsters if given the right set of uh, uh, premises. The the trouble is, is we we have these natural defenses to be violent when it seems like violence might salvage our, our, the perpetuation of our, our species or genes to be violent. I'm kind of curious, uh, what was the reason? Did you ever find out the reason that your mom Well, it was more that she just wasn't interested in getting that deep into it, but she did finally have a deep conversation when I was simply asking her questions. I guess it's just when I was telling her, like, whether as a kid or an adult, like, you know what I thought about this when the preacher said this and this and that, and she's just like, uh... I got to think about how to cook dinner. Um, I got to, you know, like, she, she just, I guess she, she wasn't interested in that respect. And a lot of times she just doesn't put those kinds of, um, thought processes on the top of her priority list. Do you think that changed possibly also when you became an adult and in her opinion suddenly were, I would were more say no, engaging? because street epistemology was really the first time I, I was able to really engage with her uh, on such a deep topic. Every other opportunity, it's really, like, I, I always felt frustrated because, for me, uh, it seems obvious to think that if my mom is wrong and she's demanding something of me as the adult or, you know, person whose house I'm living in, um, if she's demanding something of me and she's wrong, she's clearly taking a stance of, I don't care if I'm wrong, you're going to do it, or this is the way it is, and... She in no way seems that irrational in any other context until there's a dispute, right? So whether it's disagreeing over religious beliefs or specifics, 
I think oftentimes she just tries to avoid any possible conflict or, or talk about things that we might conflict on because she doesn't feel like she can be ready to defend it all the time. And she doesn't care that I can be able to debunk her. She knows that she doesn't take enough time to think too hard about these things. So she's not ready to let that be the game that we're playing. I kind of feel like uh, Steve's mom sort of almost has a, a, a good point because if you know that you don't have the time and the intellect and the energy to really delve into something, but you have this person you trust, the priest, who's already done all the work, it's kind of rational to default to them. And if some, you know, some kid comes around and tries to tell you that everything he said is wrong, you're like, well, I don't have time for this right now. I'm sure you could beat me because I haven't spent a lot of time on this, and you obviously have, but my priest has spent even more time than you, so I'm going to go with him. Yeah, in a sense that that is exactly what it's like. But I guess a more clear picture on something that historically between my mom and myself really meant something important to me in terms of where we've disagreed. Um, Back when I was, before I was even 18, um, she and my stepdad uh, put in a lot of conversation uh, that was basically a warning to me that when you're 18, you're out the door, so you better know what the hell you're doing. All, All very implied. Um, and, and taken uh, quite to heart as soon as they were said. And from uh, the time I was a sophomore, knowing that this was going to be the case, I tried to have a conversation with them about, okay, well, maybe I can take over my own life now um, and do something like drop out of school, get my GED, and go straight to the community college nearby. And then my life will be in my hands, and I'll be in college even before I'm 18. So you won't have to worry about me and I'll be off out of your hands, right? So she said, um, no, you need you need to build your social skills in school and, and be with people your own age. And I was just like, um, okay, well that sucks. And then slowly the time the, the time kept ticking as she kept <laughs> making it clear, when you're eighteen you're on your own. Um, and it wasn't like she'd come to me every day saying that or threatening it. It's just whenever there was a fight, whenever there was some reason to think about it, yeah, I'd get the threat. Well, so way back then, I would have really loved some ability to have a conversation with her and be able to potentially convince her that maybe kicking me out or threatening to kick me out isn't a good idea. And now it's it's been 16 years later after um, I graduated high school and I have two siblings who are now in junior high and just entering high school. And my mom and I had a conversation where she brought up, you know, it just doesn't seem like in this day and age we can, um, a, a, a parent can actually um, just throw their kid out to, to fend for themselves when they graduate high school and are on their own. And I'm like, I am so glad you feel that way now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you. I was the oldest kid as well, and there is so much ground you break being the eldest kid that you, your siblings have it so easier afterwards. You you son of a bitch. You don't even know what I went through so that you can have this freedom now. Would you like to see these uh, communication skills taught in schools or somehow I available to people early on in life? I absolutely would love a good number of things taught early in, in, um, earlier in life. Like I, I would recommend, if I had anything to say with the edu- education system to start teaching people or kids the basics of philosophy and human psychology at about the age of nine. 
mainly because that's the age where they can actually start to comprehend these things and also the age right before they, they need to comprehend these things because they're going to be a big focal point in their lives, whether it's them talking to people about religions and various beliefs or it's them going through hormones that are going to make them feel things which they can't understand or explain in which they will quickly find some kind of rationalization as to why and not realizing that, hey, you could be going through mania or you could be going through depression. This, this is something to be aware of. I completely agree. I feel like kids can understand more than we give them credit for and that there's every benefit to exposing them to the ideas, you know, like you said, of human psychology, of philosophy, general thinking skills, you know, as, as a core class, mm -hmm. you know, from sixth grade onwards. Uh, right? third, uh, uh, maybe earlier. How old third grade. Olds? I don't know. Um, nine year olds. <laughs> the nine year olds are also nine years old, but yeah, they're, oh, third grade. Okay. Right. You always subtract <laughs> six. Oh, that works. When I was nine, my Christian school, that I went to was actually trying to teach me philosophy. They just happened to teach it in a way of saying, um, some atheists try to argue that because of what philosophers say, that means that Jesus uh, isn't really the son of God. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like a bad argument, but go ahead. So one example is of what philosophers say is, um, is Rene Descartes saying, I think therefore I am. And I didn't have to hear any more to understand that at that age. I was just enthralled, like, oh my gosh, I was just thinking about this and Santa Claus and wondering if I was real. I'm real. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Santa Claus so bringing like, on an existential okay, crisis. So, okay, so what is it the atheists say about, how does that have anything to do with Jesus? And then they go, but the atheists are wrong. Because Rene Descartes himself was a Christian. So there. <laughs> that is a stupid argument. But, oh my gosh, I am real. <laughs> I'm actually really real. <laughs> See, that was a good takeaway. I, I like how a lot of early philosophers, when they were trying to make arguments against something that they thought was bullcrap, would first say, this is why this is wrong, and then give a really weak... Uh, really weak case for why it was wrong. They're, they're technically towing the party line while sneaking in all the reasons that the, <laughs> it's wrong. Because yep. back then, you know, if you went against the church, you got tortured. They were mm. like, I am, I am supporting the church. Here are these really flimsy counter-arguments to these really good arguments. But, yeah. Steve, I am, I'm wondering what you think is both the future of street epistemology in general, where it's headed, and also what the future is for you. In general, it's a growing movement now, and there's not only um, can you find at streetepistemology.com, you can find videos, um, instruction in videos, tutorial videos, and examples, um, as well as they even have a playlist of the critics of street epistemology that are on YouTube so far. And um, they have they are right now in the process of beta testing um, in New Zealand and I think somewhere else um, an app called the Atheos app. And I helped to beta test it in its early stages. It's basically an app where you are asked you are given sample situations of what your interlocutor could could be asking of you or, or say, stating outright and gives you um, multiple choice of what possible responses you might have. And it, it it has some that are pretty tricky, and they explain when you pick one that they've selected as the correct response, they explain to you, um, and you can read more about why this is more ideal than any of the others, because 
um, you know, it sets the, the, the critical thoughts in motion one way as opposed to, you know, avoiding the in-your-face answer or the one that might d uh, distract them from the topic. Um, so I find that street epistemology is really growing in that sense, and eventually it will probably hit a, a peak. Um, my hopes for it is that it will first connect much more intimately with the atheist movement and the rationalist movement, and that if nothing else, something better might come of it, like a, an even better model can be formed um, after testing this one out for a while. Do you have any resources for people that like to read? Because I, I went to streetepistemology.com and there was almost nothing there to read, and there were videos and such, but I... I'm not really a video watching person. I'm very much the kind of person who would go through the old less wrong, uh, less wrong yeah. website and just read for hours and hours all these text posts. Is there anything like that that you could point to? Well, there's the Street Epistemology Facebook group. You can ask to join that, and it, it's not too hard to to get accepted. And so there's people you can talk to through text there. There's also um, the book itself really that defines and, and establishes what street epistemology is, a manual for creating atheists. It's hard to get past the title, I know, but I will assure anybody listening, the title, a manual for creating atheists, is actually a bait-and-switch tactic, where in the book itself, uh, Boghossian even explains that he's not really trying to create atheists, or he isn't really trying to convince you to be an atheist. He just thinks that atheism will be a, a logical result that will spread after people um, utilize a technique like street epistemology. And what he really wants is for you to learn how to engage with others civilly about um, what they believe and why they believe it. I've, I've always felt the exact same thing, that if you just teach people to love the truth enough, they'll seek yeah. it out on their own and eventually they'll get to atheism on their own. <laughs> I know, I'm stupid and idealistic. Yeah, I think that that's, that's how most people become atheists. Yeah. Uh, whether or not They're just works. confident. But it's, but it's also somewhat <laughs> insulting to imply that anyone who is still a believer is someone who doesn't right. uh, and, love truth enough to, to look right. into that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I try not to say that, yeah. but I still have that, and that so the, hope and belief. The purpose really isn't, the objective isn't to really convince people to be atheists. Um, it's to be open enough to even find that maybe if you heard a new argument, you might discover that you want to change your mind and no longer be atheists. It's just, we know that this technique leads you more down the, down the more rational path, whatever that may be. Awesome. So how long, uh, we, we're getting up to the one hour mark, so we should probably cut this short soon, but how long uh, do you think it would take someone to become versed enough in street epistemology to give this a try? How much effort does it take? I think it would take about a half hour of listening to um, Anthony Magnabosco. If you're a good study, um, watch some videos on Anthony Magnabosco's YouTube channel um, where he engages with people at, at a college in a college campus in Texas, in San Antonio. And he shows you through, through the questions that he asks and through his own demeanor exactly what street epistemology is. So if you're a quick study, I would watch his videos for a while till you get comfortable with it and practice on your own. Um, maybe even role play with some of us on Blab or on um, 
or you can also just test it out through tweets. That's something that helped me to get geared up for it. Can you send us a few uh, links of a few of your favorite videos and we'll put them up on the website? Sure can. Awesome. That's a good time to yeah. mention that anything you want to plug, uh, by all means. Well, I've pretty much plugged everything already that I think is is quite relevant. Um, a Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Boghossian. Um, you can catch some people doing street epistemology on Blab, um, blab.io. If you, you know, just sign up for it, maybe follow myself at Young Idealist or um, another individual, Doug, is really, really good at street epistemology there and has a has kind of a cult following. Um, he goes by at P1NE Creek, so Pine Creek with a one. And yeah, so I think that's pretty much... Oh, also streetepistemology.com. Great resource to to sign up uh, with a newsletter and keep updated with what street epistemology is all about. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much no for problem. telling us about street epistemology and for joining us today. Yeah, this was very enlightening. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. Anything else that you wanted to, to say or anything before we... Um, no, I, I had a good time. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. I'm I'm an Uber fan of Ennio's uh, um, HP Mark podcast and everything that you guys do. So keep it up. Aw, thank you. Okay, thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, we are continuing the episode with the feedback feature, which we now do regularly. All right, uh, let's start with Mr. Oliva. Uh, he told us how to pronounce it on the subreddit. It was Oliva. So, yes, very similar. Oliva. Overcompensation bias. In today's episode, it was mentioned that the thought of revering Eliezer is hated to the point that people give him less credence than he deserves. I find this as a common theme in a subset of rationalists. Overcompensation bias is characterized by once one realizes that they have a bias or that they were factually wrong, they try very hard to change that belief. Many, including me in the past, then swing their beliefs far too far to the other direction because they know that it is a natural tendency to believe what they originally believed. Yes. It is very easy to notice this in yourself and trick yourself into thinking that it's fine to be so far in the opposition because then you will not slip back to your original belief. This, while having some benefits, is a bad strategy to adopt. I've never heard it called overcompensation bias before, but I had always heard the term that the uh, the newly converted are the most zealous. They're, yeah, it, it seems to be very much a case, and I, I think rationalists tend to stick... I don't know, do rationalists stick to that much longer than normal people? Maybe not. Normal people do tend to be zealous for a very long time once they convert. Mm. But it, it could be very much a sort of thing where you want to not make that same mistake that you've made in the past, and so you really work hard to to never uh, like he said to to not be to overcompensate yeah to overcompensate i have a little bit of a quibble with some of these biases mm-hmm. there always seems to be a bias and then there's an opposite bias that's right yes so there's um which we brought up in the episode briefly there's the anchor bias mm-hmm. where you don't where you um have a first piece of information and then you don't update far enough away from that first piece of information mm-hmm and now this is the opposite, the overcompensation bias, where you update way too far away from the first piece of information and you go too far. And I've run into that a lot when I was looking at Wikipedia's list of cognitive biases, that there's always a bias and then there's the opposite bias. What is up with that? <laughs> well, that, that question is, I think, because it's it's easy to miss the mark going too far either way, right? Yeah. But as far as um, 
rationality having this the lack of zealotry that other things might it might help that there's a, a whole sequence on uh, effective death spirals right. um, where you know you're kind of cautioned against you know taking this and running all the way with it but it's, as far as overcompensation overcompensation bias I feel like it is a useful technique to employ consciously uh, if you're doing it unconsciously that might be a problem but anchoring is a good example my girlfriend and I were at the mall some months ago when the Super Bowl was about to happen and they were selling jerseys next to the food court and I said how much do you think those cost I'm betting they cost like you know 30 bucks and she's like oh I don't know 50 and I went I went over and checked and then I came back and said if I didn't say 30 what would you have guessed and she thought for a second she's like 75 80 I was like they're like 100 bucks <laughs> but the point was is that she was anchored on mine and if she corrected away from it she might have gotten a uh, a closer answer um, but again, if she corrected too far and said probably twelve hundred, uh, that's you're doing it wrong that way too. But but I think deliberate overcompensation is a useful tactic. I think part of it is also the less strong community has when when you first find rationality after having been living in their crazy world for a long time, you tend to get really excited about it. And so the less wrong community has been called cultish many times and. It's intensely annoying, but it's also that no one wants to be a cult. Well, at least no one who considers himself a rationalist. And so there's very much a strong overcompensation pushback to not be the cult. It's it's like the people who uh, immigrate from a different country and then burn all ties and, you know, don't keep any of their cultural artifacts around and don't let their children speak the home language in the home anymore because they, they want to not be associated with that in any way. And I think that's one of the reasons that they overcompensated because people were like, well, Ellie Iser is your cult leader. And we're like, nope, nope, we hate him. He's a terrible guy, and he's the worst. Right, yeah. So with the with the example given uh, that Mr. Oliva gave with the general regard to Eliezer Yudkowsky, I think that there is a happy medium to... Uh, if someone says Eliezer is the true caliphate, uh, if they... It's it's clear that we're joking. That that line, by the way, is not mine. That came from a, a fun Slate Star Codex discussion. There's a tendency to overcompensate and say that we, you know, oh, he's just one guy. In fact, he's not even the coolest. But I mean, and that's 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 possibly true. But it, I think it's uh, we have like like. But then it gets to the point where you cannot quote him at all because then you're over revering him. Yeah, that sounds like a problem too, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> Shall we go on? I think we shall. Um, Adam says, first of all, thanks for these questions. I noticed that our last podcast had a lot of comments on the subreddit, and we're not going to get to all of them, but we'll get to some of them. So Adam said, I still don't get why you seem to keep bringing up interacting with others and getting their esteem as eternal value. Oh, you, Yeah, he's aimed at me. It's sort of a random thing, right? Do you agree that you should care about these things, probably for Evo Psych stuff, about humans being social and esteem being useful for survival? Yeah, totally. Um... That's the thing about terminal values. They are, I mean, they're not entirely random, but there's no reason or logic behind them. You just have the terminal values you have, and you can't be argued out of them. They can change over time, maybe, but the whole purpose, not purpose, the whole thing of a terminal value is that there isn't any any reason to it. It's just what your value happens to be. And in lots of cases for humans, it is due to things that we evolved in. There's a reason a lot of people have sex as a terminal value, and it has to do with passing on the genes. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still something that a lot of people value simply for its for its own sake. I'm not sure if esteem for others is actually your terminal value. I feel like esteem you love others. Yeah, 
Oh, excuse me, not esteem for, esteem of. Yeah. I, feel I, like, I don't esteem anyone. Screw I, them. <laughs> I feel like you're more interested in being happy and other people esteeming you makes you happy. Yeah, yeah is that your true objection? Right, right. But then that gets, that always gets back to the only thing anyone actually cares about is happiness. And sure, okay, but that's stupid to say because what are the things that make you happy? Those are the things that are actually your values. Yeah, instrumentally in the fact that they get you happy. But I guess, like, <laughs> uh, you know, not... If, if you boil it down to all everyone wants is happiness and nothing else, then you can give them the happy drug and say that the world is perfect now, now that everyone is blissed unhappy. That's Listen, true. And yes, you just haven't tried the happy drug yet. That's it's really God. good, man. <laughs> <laughs> so this looks like it was a comment on whether or not we were, we were discussing the, the impact of Orgasmium. Re- re- <laughs> this is different. No? Um, reducing suffering. I'm moving on to the next uh, question. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. We, this is, but in the context of when we talked about reducing suffering is uh, possibly easier and more cost effective. Adam says... Oh, yeah. We said the, that the internet is uh, provides a lot of value, so it technically didn't cost anything to make people happy. Sure. But also in, in the next uh, comment here by Adam, uh, deworming seems like decreasing, seems more like decreasing suffering and has a large economic benefit through increased school attendance and later productivity. So I guess it was just a concrete example of um, him being right and us being wrong. Well, no, I think I think it was just a good example. I was on the side of of putting efforts towards reducing suffering. Yeah, I, I think and, I think we should give him props for pointing out that yes, lots of times reducing suffering also pays for itself and has high economic value. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I thought mm-hmm. that was given, but that's that's absolutely worth spelling out. Um, next one. Sure. Okay. Oh yeah, I like this one. So he says, even though it's obvious that the internet is making people much happier, I'm not sure whether that's actually true. If people just set a new happiness baseline and ultimately end up experiencing as much pleasure slash feeling as fulfilled as they did before having access to this new resource, then our naive desire to strive towards more pleasure is just causing a lot of waste. He says, for me, the fundamental relevant question is, are people today actually more happy than they were for the, in the previously in history? Are our brains filled with more happiness chemicals than the brains of our ancestors, and are we experiencing more happiness, quote-unquote, than they were? Did our brains evolve in such a way that they have a capacity for pleasure that went untapped for hundreds of thousands of years, which we are now finally tapping? No, of course not. No, and I, I, I think that's a very good point, but I don't know... I don't know what to do about it. He says, I kind of been thinking that the human project of making the world better is fundamentally flawed, and we should all become Stoics or Buddhists or something. So my immediate thought is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Stoicism or Buddhism if you're doing it right, but... We so, have the ability to... We've always had the ability to have the same amount of happiness, right? Um, generally, happiness is comparative, right? Samson yeah. says, poor people smile. And in the important way, there's no putting the cat back in the bag. Like, you... I imagine Adam, the commenter, probably wouldn't be super happy living like our ancestors did. Even yeah. though, like, to them, like, finding a body of water that was uncontaminated was like, holy shit, it's mm-hmm. like Christmas morning. Um, but I think the Amish are a good counterexample. They do live like our ancestors. Not not in all ways. They cheat in a lot of things. Cheat in quotes. I mean, it's their religion. But uh, they do live much more primitively than we do, but they seem just as happy. I don't have good ways to measure their happiness, honestly. Well, me neither. Uh, so I, I, I would wonder... And again, I guess maybe comparatively, how happy are they being raised in the Dark Ages under religious indoctrination as opposed to like living in the first world with uh, 
all the cool things we have like electric lights and internet and stuff. Mm, my question is, um, how happy are you now and how happy would you be if you had worms? Right. Well, that worms is a much, much more concrete example, which is, I think why the focus should be on, or why a lot of people say the focus should be on decreasing suffering rather than increasing happiness. I, I, I think he kind of has a point, but on the other hand, I think we should have an episode on uh, intellectual complexity. Because I think the the big advantage we have is that our intellectual lives are more complex now than they used to be, or at least have a greater capacity for it, and I think there's more value in that. The, the whole miserable Socrates is still better than a happy pig argument. Yeah, those are, those are basically my thoughts, too. We should have an episode about this at some point, and then Katrina can hate us and never talk to us again afterwards. Wait, an episode about what? Yeah, intellectual complexity. Okay. Okay. Well, I wonder why you'd hate us afterwards. Well, I don't, I don't know why I'd hate you. Uh, didn't you say that you think animals have just as much moral worth as humans? Um, oh, that sounds like a different question. I did not say that. Oh, okay. Never mind. She said that they have more than you... Uh, more than you give them credit for. That's what ah, levels okay. afterwards, yeah. That, that could be true. Alright, next one. Uh, though you attributed to me in this episode, user Dragon Ball Herpes made the conspiracy theory comment. Sorry, Dragon Ball Herpes, we'll, we'll hit you next time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he went on to quote uh, from a Facebook thread, which I thought was really interesting. So go ahead and... Yeah, that, that's from the Facebook. Uh, somehow, somewhere along the line, accusing governments and the powerful of crimes became associated with mental illness, disrespectability, and raging idiocy. And when you pause to notice that it is incredibly creepy, it's certainly possible to imagine how such a meme could arise naturally, but a little too perfect. I'm sorry, what meme? When we're talking about conspiracy theories, that anyone who uh, promotes conspiracy theory is automatically thought of as a idiot and a crackpot. It's a little too perfect, like the radioactive waste of a propaganda war fought generations back. See, now that sounds conspiracy theory mongering. But that isn't. Well, there were propaganda over. wars fought during the, during the 50s, during communism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, radioactive waste. Of pro- I mean, so. Oh, he's being poetic. Oh, I know. Okay. Um, so, that's an interesting thing to put forward. There's an interesting over, overlap between how. We'll have to have a longer episode on conspiracy theories at some point. What if we promise you that, Dronga Ball Herpes, and then we'll. Uh, uh, we'll leave it for there for now. How's that sound? I, that sounds good. I, I do like the any bringing up any sort of uh, situation where memes seem to promote their own survival, even though they aren't intelligent. And, and a, a a meme that anyone who accuses the rich and powerful of conspiracies makes you automatically not someone worth listening to is very interesting in that regard. It sure sounds interesting. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> I'm getting the skeptical eyebrow. No, I mean, I. that sounds like a general bulwark shield against anyone who would challenge you as being a conspiracy theorist. You said, you know, isn't, it con- isn't it convenient that you believe that conspiracy theorists are crazy? Yeah, but like, isn't mm-hmm. that convenient? It's, it's interesting. But it I don't like, think it's a conspiracy theory at all. I think it naturally arose, partly because they usually are crazy. It's cert- there's, there seems it's to be enough overlap there. But it's because these things work out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so to say that it's uh, too perfect, I guess, is what's getting me. But it's interesting. It's worth talking about in more depth. Uh, next comment was, I think you may have overreached a bit when you said that it would be immoral to expose someone to ideas that made them choose suicide in the service of good. Yeah, um, that's he has a point there, because a lot of our cultural um, effort is put into um, lionizing people who do give their lives for the greater good, 
for the Spocks or for the Frodos, although Frodo didn't actually die. But you know who I'm talking about, the people who do sacrifice themselves for their societies. Or the person who literally jumps on a grenade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those sorts of people are awesome. And so we have we have great reason to promote that. So also, yeah, people are talking about with self-driving cars. Um, that's a question that's come up recently. Should a self-driving car AI protect the driver at all costs? Yeah. Or should it, um, under some circumstances, cause the death of the driver in order to save five orphan children? I don't know. 500 orphan children. 500 orphan children. And um, so the answer is 500 orphan children, obviously. As long as it's spelled out clearly in the EULA. So I, <laughs> I want to know what I'm getting into if my car is going to take me somewhere, if it's going to decide to kill me. So I will concede <laughs> that, yes, I was definitely overreaching a bit when I said that it would be always immoral to expose people to those ideas. But on the other hand, there's the group of people I am familiar with often suffer um, from crippling amounts of self-loathing because they feel like they are worthless and they're not doing enough good in the world and they should be spending a lot of effort on helping other people and none on themselves. And it leads to terrible amounts of depression. And it's not helping anybody. And it's not helping anybody, no. So that is what I am reacting against. I don't have a problem with not enough people trying to save society. But I have not... a problem with people sacrificing themselves for no good reason and ending up being depressed. Yeah, it's not sustainable is what you're talking about, is yeah. that if people are um, sacrificing themselves at the expense of their own well-being, then they can't do more good. I believe the term is scrupulosity, and I will link to that as well in the show notes, that there are people who have a pathological sort of need to help others, and I've seen it ruin lives. I'm just picturing eight soldiers pushing and shoving to see who could jump on the grenade. <laughs> and then, of course, no one's better off. But that's not exactly how this plays out in real life. So. No. Oh, uh, oh yes, and he brought up, which is also a thing that I'm... I We're still here. talking about atoms? Yes, this is the very last point, still with the immorality of exposing people to ideas to sacrifice themselves. He says, this is why it's nice to have something like the giving what we can pledge. And I agree completely. The giving what we can pledge is a pledge that you will give 10% of your income to a charitable foundation. Or what you can. Or what you can, yes. Wasn't it based off of Peter Singer's uh, income calculator where you put in how much you make? And, you you know, I think it might just be just how much you make, maybe with your expenses. And it's like, looks like you could give 3%. I believe. uh, Or whatever it's out to be. Probably. Uh, the, the, The one I'm familiar with is the Scott Alexander post saying... Look, if you're giving 10%, you are a good person. So give what you can in that regard, and that gives, set aside a percentage of your income that is reasonable to help other people, and don't stress out so much about every single ice cream that you have. Gotcha. Okay, uh, Not Without Incident says, Wikipedia used to have a page listing conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, which was later removed. Of course, this set off conspiracy theorists. They should put that back up. <laughs> I, I would, would be. I've looked into trying to find some ways to find out what were conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. And if I could go to my old pal Wikipedia and figure that out, that'd have been great. So thanks for screwing us. Yeah. He also linked the uh, the common thread when they were discussing about whether they should delete it or not, which he said was really interesting. So I'll link that as well. Oh, please. Uh, finally, this one is aimed at you, Mr. Oliva. Oliva? Did I pronounce that right? I, I don't know. Okay, Mr. Oliva. Uh, says to Katrina, there are some problems with infinities in morality. If something is infinitely bad, then doing it twice is exactly as bad as doing it once, which is as bad as doing it indefinitely. I knew it! The same goes for infinitely good things. This is why it is necessary to define it as some very large value, not infinity. What did you know? Booyah! 
Mr. Olive agrees with me and explained it very well. Thank you. I was attacking Jason mm-hmm. um, about saying that suffering is infinitely bad or approaches infinite, infinitely bad. And I was saying, you can't work with infinites. It's just, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work out. But I'm not good at explaining things, and Mr. Oliva is, so thank you. Woohoo! <laughs> and finally, by the time this goes up, we will have had a new logo put up on the webpage. Woo-hoo! Yay! Uh, I want to give a, well, we all want to give a personal th- shout out to Jess Dickey for designing the new logo for us. Thank you, Jess. It looks lovely. Thanks, Jess. We're really excited. If they get a link to us, uh, to their professional site, before this episode goes live, it'll be included in this show's notes. Alright, huzzah! Thanks, Jess, this is great. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Bye! Bye!